Welcome to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Lakshdatta. What you're about to hear is the audio version of a live online session from JLF Toronto 2020. Crossover narratives. Anne Cleves, Anosha Rani, and Emma Donahue in conversation with Devyani Saltzman. Just before we begin, and uh, there's a lot to cover, I do want to just acknowledge that JLF Toronto, at least, uh, operates on the territory of the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee, and Wendat, and the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenants, an agreement between um, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the Anishinaabe Three Fires Confederacy to care for the land around the Great Lakes. So even operating in the digital space, um, important to acknowledge the territory we are on. Welcome, everyone. How is everyone? Anosha, it is 7.30 in the morning Pacific. I think it's 5.30 and Greenwich Mean Time. And Emma, I don't know where you are right now. Are you in Toronto? In Ontario. Very close to Toronto. Welcome. All of your work um, is incredible and crosses genres, and you have worked uh, in multiple forms. Um, and I want to ask you more about that because I know I'm more familiar on terms of the theater adaptations of uh, the theater work of Emma and, and Anosh in addition to their, their fiction work. But I wanted to start with just asking if very briefly you could each talk a little bit about your process of adaptation, um, just two minutes, and then I'm going to go into a specific question for Emma. Anosh, do you want to begin? Sure, sure. Uh, lovely to see you, Devyani. Um, for me, you know, the the form changes, but what remains the same is uh, staying with the character. Whether it's uh, fiction, whether it's theater or screenwriting, I've always looked at how a person is wounded. You know, in if you think about it in in life, we all of us are wounded in some way or the other. And we, we make choices. Uh, they might be unconscious choices, but we make these choices from uh, a point of deep pain. And sometimes our pain causes us to make, you know, big choices, unpredictable choices. And this is extremely true, more true, I would say, in, in fiction. You know, when, so it doesn't matter what form it is you know you have to master the form the rules are different for for short stories novels plays and and screenwriting but what remains the same is i always feel i'm exploring the human condition and the starting point for that is how is my character wounded because what they want is healing if we look at a trajectory of a character in any story it really is you go from a point of deep pain to some sort of healing right and that's what i'm looking for the forms will change but this the essence of my search remains the same thank you anosh i'm looking forward to discussing that with uh, your character felix and buffoon which was just at the arts club but and can i get your what are your thoughts on anosh starting with the wound and also your own relationship to adaptation yeah i mean i think we all write about people who are in pain because that's the human condition and we're, we're all like that and we're all looking for some form of healing. Um, I write genre fiction, I write popular crime fiction 
And when the books were optioned for television, uh, I was asked, would I be interested in working on the adaptations? And I decided very early on that I didn't want to do that, that I don't know about writing for television, that I love seeing my characters from the inside out. And writing for TV is, is very different because you're looking from the outside in. Um, and I, I didn't think that I could do that. So I always say that, um, that it's a bit like handing a child over for adoption, that you have to be very, very sure that you want to do that, that you want to give your child away. But once you have made that decision and you've given them to somebody that you trust, then you have no right to meddle. So I try not to interfere. And perhaps because of that, I have a very good relationship with the team that makes the, the shows. Thank you. And Emma. Uh, Anne is so right that you have to know whether you want to take part or not. There's no point selling the books and then whining about what happens to them. Um, I, I'm the kind who, who can't hand over her babies. I love adapting my own work. But interestingly, I think people probably suspect that it's a very egotistical business that you're saying, oh, my wonderful story, look at it again from a different angle. But strangely enough, the business of putting your own story through three forms, say, as I've done in the case of Room, which we made into a film and play. See, I naturally said we for the second two. I wrote the novel, but it seems like we made the film and the play. But strangely enough, it doesn't focus you on the marvels of your own writing at all. It focuses you on the form. You're like, oh, films are cool. They work differently. They work through through sight primarily, they work through faces, they work through what is not said. And um, they're far less from the inside out and far more from the outside in, which doesn't make them shallow, it just makes them visual. And then theater, again, it's, it, it's not committed to naturalism in the same way. Even if the acting is naturalistic, you can all tell you're sitting in a room watching people, you can see the audience. And so with theater, there's a completely different bargain with the audience such that we know it's a game, we know it's a play, we know it's a ritual, and that brings out completely different aspects in the story. So every time I've adapted my work, I find myself fascinated by sort of what's so good about fiction, theatre or film, rather than about, you know, my own story. Thank you. I'm so glad everyone has started on that note. And I wanted to maybe Emma dive a little more deeply into specifically Room because Room went through three previews and was and had to unfortunately close just before opening night due to the pandemic. Um, I'm assuming this is in London and it was a Covent Garden Mervish co-production. I wanted to ask you what the greatest challenge was of adapting Room both to film and to theater and the differences in both. You were nominated for Best Academy Award for outstanding, um, well, for adapted screenplay. What was the difference in terms of adapting for theater versus film? I would say it's not that films have to be naturalistic, but, but generally if you're working within the kind of European art movie tradition, if it's not very obviously Hollywoody, then people want a level of naturalism. So for instance, we, 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 we made Ma be um, 17 when she was kidnapped rather than 19 because one of the researchers for the film found that the FBI do not bother getting involved if you're an adult when you're kidnapped. So that's the kind of tiny little fact that we had to get right. And um, they used an algorithm to work out how faded by sunlight each of the square cork tiles inside the room would be. You know, I mean, they had a level of commitment to the real that left me you know, my, it took my breath away and it meant I didn't feel I needed to micromanage it at all because they were all doing it. Um, and I would say by complete contrast, um, in a play, you all know it's not real. For instance, in a play, we couldn't have one child play Jack 
because in the film, um, Jake Tremblay could give his amazing performance a little bit at a time. We, as it were, put it together from, from beautiful fragments he made, but you could not expect a child to sort of narrate the entire play um, at that age. So we used a totally different convention in the play. We have an adult speaking Jack's kind of confident inner voice, and we have a child on stage doing dialogue. So there are two Jacks. So it's a, it's a completely different and much more obviously theatrical setup. And I would say also the play highlights the fact that um, Jack and Ma are very, they're doing a very theatrical thing. They're like prisoners making stuff up to entertain themselves. They're, they're trying to turn the, the blank space of their, their shed, their locked shed into a kind of a wonderland and through imagination. So yeah, we, we really, in a way, because the film had been so successful, we were able to completely turn away from it and play to different strengths with the play. And um, in, in the British and um, Canadian productions, we've cast women of color as Ma and mixed race kids as Jack. And that brings out a whole new angle in the story. So it's a real pleasure to be able to really aim into the corners of the genres rather than trying to keep it so much the same. That sounds, that is super fun because as you said, you get to discover different elements of how the imagination can work and whether it's on the screen or on the stage. And not unlike Emma, what happened with Room, Anoche, um, your play Buffoon uh, has just, I think, unfortunately due to British Columbia's um, pandemic rules, been stopped at the Arts Club, but you had, I think, about three weeks of a run. Can you talk a little bit about the creation of Buffoon and um, adapting your own work? You've adapted from short stories to theater and the the challenges of adapting your own work in that way. Sure. Uh, so Buffoon essentially is the is the story of Felix, who's a child who's born into the circus, and he's born to trapeze uh, artists, but eventually he becomes uh, a clown. And really, the 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 challenge for me, what's interesting about Buffoon was it it started way back in two thousand and four or five as a, a play called Manja Circus, which was commissioned by the National Arts Center and had a full cast of characters, about seven or eight of them. And I worked on it for a few years. And then one day I realized that this character of the clown just wanted his own show. It's as though, you know, the fictional clown walked up and walked out rather of the play out of his own circus. And it became a one man show. And I realized that he was on stage, but the stage was actually a prison. He was telling us his story from jail. And that's when the show sort of, you know, uh, opened up for me. I said, okay, why is he, why is he talking to us? And why now? He's talk talking to us from jail. But what does he want? You know, theater, what it does is it creates a sense of urgency. I, I don't think um, you can ever lose momentum in a play. The minute you do that, it's over. And so your want has to be really urgent. The, the momentum has to keep keep going um, in, in, a, in a play. And uh, that's really once I found again his wound, which was abandonment. It's a play about motherhood as well, not just, you know, this this young boy. It's his relationship with his with his parents. And he longs for someone to love him the way he wants to be loved, the way he thinks uh, love should be. And in the end, what he really wants is to forgive himself. We find out why he's in jail. So what started out as a full length play with a cast of you know seven people shrunk in the same form into a one man show, mainly because I stayed with character, as I was saying earlier. And uh, I've also adapted my own work. It's gone through different forms. And I completely understand what Emma is saying. It's you're not trying to 
you know revisit the your own brilliance in that sense because it gets it, it, the the form what it does it exerts a different kind of pressure on the character and a different kind of juice emerges so the very one of the very first short stories that i wrote was a story called bullet number 1 and this was in the year 2000 and it had uh, uh, a eunuch who runs an illicit uh, you know brothel in in bombay's red light district and that sort of morphed into my first play the matka king where where i sort of explored a different aspect of his character and then i wrote in 2016 the parcel which was again a transgender sex worker but completely different from the eunuch who had been castrated against his will in this novel the main character madhu is actually trapped in the wrong body so she identifies as transgender whereas the eunuch who was castrated still identifies as a man because he was castrated against his will so the form the movement of that character through different forms exerted a different kind of pressure on the character each time and a, a different aspect of that character's condition and pain was revealed mm. Thank you, Anush. And I know you've talked about maybe kind of the handing over of the form to filmmakers and ITV and the team behind Vera and Shetland. But I just want to ask you specifically about um, the importance of sense of place to your work. And we'll come back to it as a group in terms of isolation, especially during this moment of the pandemic. But you talk about your, your you know, whether it's Shetland or or it's Vera or it's your new series. Um, these are isolated communities. How have isolated communities influenced um, your narratives? I think that the setting is more than just a pretty backdrop to the action which it it can be seen sometimes as that 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 we're so focused on plot and character that the the background is is just that it's just in the background but I think that people grow out of the place where they where they grew up and we we are the product of the streets that we played on and the people who brought us up and the and and what and the view that we saw from our windows as children and and all that um feeds into our writing so i suppose i write more about community than about the individual and uh, my daughter's an academic she's a human geographer and i think that's what i do i look at the relationship between people and place and so i i explained that i was happy to hand over the the stories to be adapted by by a production team but really the the deal breaker the one deal breaker was that it should be that they should all be filmed where they were set um because it seemed to me that that was that was vitally important and you couldn't imagine the shetland books being filmed anywhere other than shetland the odd scene is filmed on the west coast in glasgow but everybody that knows the islands can can tell that that's not a a scene that's filmed in shetland and that's that's vitally important they are as you all as you said all marginal communities communities on the edge both physically and um economically and on that note maybe this is a stretch cuz just themes running through all of your work can you talk a little bit about confinement whether it's the spiritual confinement of your characters or their geographical confinement whether in a room or in a prison cell with felix or marginal communities especially as it relates to this moment And now should you want to begin? Sure. I I think the the idea of confinement can can also have nothing to do with a physical space. You know, sometimes we are just haunted by the past. We we're trapped because 
of again in Felix's case an inability to forgive. I mean, of course, he's in prison, so he is locked in in that sense. But generally, we can, you know, no matter where we go, let's say in real life, let's say the right now we're in the pandemic, but if there wasn't any pandemic, we're free to travel all over the world. We can still be extremely locked in. We can still be haunted and trapped because of our past, because of our demons. And and really, stories for me are about people uh, breaking free of that. You know, I find what it is that haunts someone. I find what they cannot shake off. And then the rest of the story is about, okay, how can they confront that? How can they forgive? How can they find some some healing and uh, just touching upon what what Anne said so beautifully that she you know looks for the relationship between uh, places and people i think that's really what setting does you know i grew up very close to bombay's red light district and whenever i write about that place i'm writing about my backyard it's not that i'm trying to write something that's shocking and and different that's the landscape of my childhood and that landscape uh, even though I grew up just 100 meters away from the red light district, the life that I had was so different from the life of, you know, uh, people who were trapped, children who were trafficked into that district. And I was aware of that from a very young age, that just 200 meters apart, you know, there are these two parallel lines moving. There's This is my life and this is the life of someone who's going through uh, incredible torture. And that's what setting is, really. Setting is, again... Uh, it, it gives rise to a, a certain kind of uh, human journey. Thank you. Emma, and please, I'm sorry to say this because we're on a screen and I'm just going around the screen, but always feel free to jump in if you want to comment or, or say something to each other. Um, but confinement and uh, Anne or Emma, whoever wishes to speak to it in terms of also this pandemic. I mean, is it affecting your writing, not only personally, but affecting the characters you're creating right now? I mean, Emma, we can talk about your newest book and and your, your nurse protagonist who it's set in a pandemic, but um, sorry, going back to it, just the, the role of confinement in your characters' lives and your work at the moment. Sure, I, I don't do it in every book, but I do have a few a few books that are set mostly in one room. So in The Wonder, it's, it's set in, mostly in a sick room, which isn't locked, but the girl is confined by her own weakness because she's not eating. In Room, the first half, they're locked in. And in The Pull of the Stars, much of the action takes place over three intense days in a maternity room, a maternity quarantine ward in Dublin in the 1918 pandemic. And I suppose it, it this all arises out of, first of all, it's, it's a trick writers have always used, the unities of time, place and action. You know, it's, it's easier to get intense, rapid interactions and changes for your characters if you limit their options. It's, it's literally easier to write than a hugely epic novel, for me anyway. But also I'm very interested in women's history and women's history has mostly been a matter of confinement. I mean, childbirth used to be called confinement. There are so many things that have trapped us at home, so many forms of, you know, oh, let's hide you away at home. Um, I'm thinking of, say, Greek islands I've been on where it looks as if all the women have been wiped out by a mystery illness. But no, they're home making the dinner while the men are in the pubs, you know. So women's exclusion from the public sphere has, I think, meant that our, our lives have very often been too small, too indoor, too confined. And so I'm very interested in in stories of, of, of living within or trying to escape from kind of, yes, shut rooms. Yeah, I, I, I think that... So, sorry, sorry, go ahead. The, the, the enclosed community and the and the the locked 
community is very much a trope in traditional crime fiction, the sort of crime fiction that I, so we, but the murder can only have happened within the, if you're thinking Agatha Christie, you know, it's the, the boat down the Nile or the train in the snow. And I do love playing with that because as Emma said, you have that sense of confinement and of people having to get on and rub against each other. And of course, if I'm writing about the Shetland Islands very much, if you have an island, then you have the only the people who are on the island who can have committed the murder. And this sense that there are all sorts of different classes and types of people, but they're all trapped in one place. And that's what it's it's very much a device and it's an artifice, but it's a great way of exploring those things. Um, we, I wish we had longer. We have about five minutes before we open up to Q&A, but it, since we're talking about adaptation, I'm on my phone right now. Most of you are on your laptop. The world seems to be streaming The Crown this week. What are your thoughts on how we're consuming culture in terms of reading versus the streaming services? How are you consuming culture? And anyone jump in. I think, uh, well, I'll just start by saying that I've, you know, there's an even greater desire now for me to read books, to hold uh, a novel in my hand and feel the page and, and scribble in the margins and make keep post-it notes there because there's such a tangible relationship. Uh, it's an intimate relationship, especially when you uh, admire someone's writing. I, I recently read this Russian writer called Varlam Shalamov, um, Kolima stories, and he writes about you know, his confinement, again, we're talking about uh, confinement in a labor camp in, in Kolima, in where he worked in like temperatures below minus 30 or something like that. And I was reading about it during the pandemic and instead of feeling depressed, I could have been, I just marveled at, at the artistry, you know, at, at, and again, you, you look at what uh, confinement does to a human being, how brutal it can be, but it also produced uh, amazing art and again examined the, the the strength and the hypocrisy of the human condition but I'm, I'm moving more towards uh, books even more now that we're in this state. And what about yourself or sorry Emma? Yeah um, with me it's I, I again yes I'm I'm reading a lot but I think because we work so much with the screen, so all the events are, are now on the screen, our meetings are, are all done through the screen, that I don't want to look at a screen for pleasure. So for me, it's radio, lots of radio drama, lots of documentaries on the radio, and, and reading hard copy novels too. I've been reading a lot, but I must also confess, and this is a genuine confession, I have resorted to daytime television to get me through pandemic. And I don't mean daytime chat shows. I mean like really reliable comedy series. Like I've watched at my 13 year old's instigation, I've watched every episode of The Office. Um, I've been watching Schitt's Creek. Um, there's just the, the comfort of the half hour well-written comedy, especially about a group, you know, the, the casual social interactions in the office or in Schitt's Creek. It's just marvelous. No worries about masks, you know. So as a, a little bit of a relaxed social world, I found it very, very helpful to, um, to, to, to drop a little comedy into my day. Yeah. Those sounds like great shows to catch up on. I want to do the same and follow suit, Emma. And I'm sorry about the uh, interruption as I 
navigate screen. Um, I have one question about Emma, your new novel before we we also open up to questions, but um, it's it follows your protagonist, Julia. It is 1918 and the, the great flu in Dublin. You started writing it two years before the pandemic. I know you've had this question over many sessions, but can you talk about the prescience of, of where this story came from and um, and how you found her voice. Sure, sure, yeah, and I, I finished it at the beginning of March this year, so it's all pre-COVID. The only change I made in the copy editing, once my publisher said, let's bring it out this summer instead of next year, as it was meant to be brought out, um, I, I replaced the word epidemic with pandemic, because when I was writing the novel, pandemic seemed like a bit of jargon, you know, it seemed far too sciencey, an obscure word, and then of course, suddenly by April, it was on everybody's lips, um, but I didn't change it otherwise, so, so it's a pre-COVID novel, and really, it's not prescient at all. People regularly write novels about pandemics. There's at least one or two a year. And every now and then someone writes a novel about the 1918 flu. So it's really just um, strangely fortuitous timing from my publisher's point of view. Um, I had very mixed feelings about bringing it out this year. Um, I was afraid people would think I was cashing in. But to be honest, it's been lovely having so many interviews this year where I get to focus people's minds on healthcare workers and how in every era we owe them our lives and um, yeah, it's been it's been a good year to be talking about nurses and midwives and doctors and hospital cleaners and orderlies and you know and 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 the sheer heroism of them. I was thinking about frontline workers when reading Julia's voice and wondering what research you did around her and nursing and then. Sure. Well, I certainly use modern sources as well as older ones because, um, you know, a, a handbook for nurses in 1918, it tells you what they were told and the tone was usually very strict. It was usually by a doctor and it would have diagrams and it would say things like, this information is given for your reference only so you know when to call a doctor. You're not to be making any independent medical decisions. So it doesn't really tell you what it was like to be a nurse or a midwife herself. So, um, I, I, for instance, I consulted with a midwife this March who was in quarantine just to check that my guesses were right. Um, I had a a, an emergency room doctor as my copy editor. She happens to do both those jobs, so that was great. Um, but I also I drew on modern sources like um, uh, you know brilliant um, the brilliant Brian Goldman his his books about life in emergency wards today and the kind of dark humor and the little nicknames or acronyms they make up for patients. Um, I really tried to sort of channel that spirit of you know of, of down to earth heroism in healthcare workers in any era. So um, yeah, modern sites. I found one midwifery site that explained how in an emergency you could extract someone's placenta by practicing on an orange. And I was like, yes, that's just the detail I need, you know. You know, beautifully rendered and such an amazing character and uh, I mean, all, all of this work is. I, I've been told we have about one minute, so a last selfish question, and I'm asking this to myself a lot these days. What gives you, um, what moments of wonder and joy are taking you as individuals and artists through this period? And um, again, you know, and a little bit, maybe more Anoche with Felix and Emma, um, your characters use their imaginations to survive. And I'm curious to what, in terms of your own personal life, is giving you that sense of joy to to move through this time. And do you want to? Yeah. Well, with me, I suppose it's place again, and it's landscape again. I live in Whitley Bay, which is a faded seaside town on the northeast coast, which is coming back to life. Really, it's being redeveloped, and people are discovering it as a good place to live, and it's become in in lockdown a beautiful place to be because within two minutes of the house i can be on the beach and going for a walk along the seashore and that sense of space and joy 
and my my daughter and her my grandchildren live very close so while everybody else was having a dreadful time over the summer those kids were paddleboarding and swimming and digging and enjoying a, a childhood that wasn't locked into a classroom i suppose so quite a different sort of childhood and, and then going up into the hills as well and, and enjoying that space and that time thank you emma I'm just so grateful that our kids haven't left home yet. They're 13 and 17 and I, I'm an extrovert and I need people to talk to. So just my partner wouldn't be enough. I'm so grateful I have three other people to talk to all the time. So, you know, reading to my 13 year old and laughs with the family have been just superb during this time. Nice. Anish? Yeah, for me, you know, I was in India for nine months. Uh, I left Canada as I do almost every year and went to Bombay in December of 2019. And then I just ended up staying there. there. But what was great is that I ended up spending a lot of time with my mom and dad um, in the same apartment that I grew up in since I was seven or eight years old. So uh, that's what I what, what I loved, you know, watching cricket with my dad. Uh, and then at night, uh, I live in a sort of Parsi colony, which is a, you know, like a co-op housing. We have our own uh, soccer field. So at night I would go and run in the dark. And uh, because of social distancing, you, could, you couldn't really see who was running next to you, but you could feel someone whiz past. Uh, but I connected with a lot of people that I, you know, grew up with. Uh, people I'd played football with when I was a kid, cricket. So the same... Uh, friends that I had from you know 30 years ago I, I in a way reconnected with them even though I didn't get a chance to meet them much I knew we were all experiencing uh, this this together oh, thank you it sounds like physicality nature and other human beings is a key ingredient um, I thank you so much for your generosity we have some questions from the audience um, our first question is is there a book from your childhood that has acted as a catalyst for your present career and I'll just open this up for anyone who wishes. I, I can start. Okay. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Over to you. You go. Oh, no, I was I was going to say it's actually not a book because I I wasn't much of a reader. I must say when I was a kid, uh, the thing that has had a huge impact on me is is my family. You know, they are fantastic storytellers. My my dad, my my grand uncles, my grandparents. And it was just growing up with these uh, people who at the time felt mythical, you know, having them, you know, have a glass of whiskey in their hand and then telling a, telling a story. That was theater at its best for me. And I, I don't think I would have been a writer if I hadn't uh, learned how to tell stories because of because of my family you know the dark sense of humor the the almost physical comedy the enactment and a great sense of timing this is what i learned from my cousins and my parents and grandparents and uh for me again it was mysteries it was wanting to get to the end of the book to find out what's happened and i suppose that's what i'm still doing i'm hoping to give my reader that cheap thrill of the surprise ending that I loved when I was a reader. So a great children's author, I think is probably out of print now, is called Malcolm Saville, who wrote um, 
kids on adventures away from their families. And, and I suppose Arthur Ransom and Swallows and, and Amazons is the big one that the children never have adults around, but are allowed to go out and have these huge adventures on their own. And um, yeah, so those were them. There's a Emma. British a British fantasy author, um, Alan Garner, and his book Redshift, mm. I got obsessed with in my teens. Um, basically, it's about a, a modern boy and girl, but in the same locations where they are, you suddenly get moments of people there during the Civil War of the 17th century, and then moments of uh, a Roman a group of Roman soldiers. So same place, but different times. And I would say that that book was the first one that sort of convinced me that the past is not past, you know, that that it's all it's all around you all the time. So if I'm writing historical fiction today, it's probably because of Alan Garner. One of our audience members is having trouble writing and asks if you have any tips in terms of kind of how you started your writing career or how you start the writing process. Um, Anyone want to take that? Sure. I mean, the, the the only tip I would have is stay with the character. You know, don't don't panic and reach for plot, because plot will emerge from from character. So if you stay with the character, and that's very hard because when you write, there's a sort of anxiety that comes that you want to get to the end, uh, but you have to almost do the opposite. You have to center yourself and stay really rooted in the human beings that you are writing about and as Anne mentioned earlier the relationships you know uh, center yourself root yourself in in that and and then you won't feel as as blocked that's something that that's always helped me yeah and not worry too much about getting the beginning absolutely right i think that some new writers think that the first chapter has to be perfect before they move on to the next one, but get the structure down first so you can go back and tweak and polish and make the words sing, but that doesn't always come first time round. I would highly recommend planning. I know it sounds like something a civil servant would say, but you know this, this myth that the entire books huge long books have to be written in this kind of blind state of inspiration with your characters just leading you and you have no idea that's very hard especially for a first timer a book is a huge thing and you know you wouldn't make a a building or a park without a bit of a plan so so yeah i would i would recommend planning i i absolutely agree with that i think preparation is so important because we we expect to to you know you're absolutely right inspiration comes from preparation you know your your preparation yeah. is key and the thing is don't start writing i i don't write for at least a year a year and a half two years you know i just make notes i have tons of these books uh, and this one has clint eastwood on the cover for some reason <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> i have tons of these notebooks and and that's the that's the preparation so i think that's that's absolutely key no i don't plan at all i think that um if I knew how it was going to end, there'd be hardly any point in writing it because that sense of discovery is what carries me through. I write like a reader, so I'll write the first scene and then I need to know what's going to happen next, so I have to write the next scene. So I think discover the way that works best for you. Uh, and for some people that is planning and research first and feeling very comfortable with what you're doing. But I need to be absolutely petrified before I start. 
So if I know how it's going to end, I lose all sense of excitement. But planning doesn't necessarily mean you know the ending. I, I don't think That's it's true. about knowing the ending. It's about feeling solid enough to just begin because everything's going to change anyway. That's true. Yeah, you need to have, I think, a sense of the voice and tone of the book before you start. You need to, to be in the world that you're creating, but you don't necessarily need to know the detail. And also, unlike with an architect or a military campaigner, you know, you can change things at the last minute. You know, you actually are free at every point. It's just that for some of us, for about half of us, I think this is the biggest distinction between writers is the planners and the pantsers. So for those of us who like to plan, you know, it, 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 it leads us through the wilderness, but we can we can wander off at any point. Yeah, you're always God in your universe. That's what's so great about being a writer. You can be in control if you want to be. We have time for about one more question. And um, the question is from Molly. And she asks what your views are on decreasing attention span for viewers and readers and how to combat that in terms of how we um, are taking in artistic work. Well, I would say try and read fiction again because fiction demands and a good novel demands that you wrestle with it you know intellectually morally try and force yourself almost uh, to do that if that's what you want to do because the way we consume stories now in you know via netflix all of that is great but uh, and and i i love movies as well but i think the novel demands your attention language demands your attention and um, you know, examining or exploring the inner landscape of a human being through literary fiction. I think that's that's a great way to learn how to focus. Well, I don't think that our young people are necessarily that bad at it. If you think about, I mean, it's a few years ago, but the huge popularity of the Harry Potter books, which are big, chunky books, and our kids stuck with them and read through them and got caught up with the magic of them. So I think. I, I think we sometimes get a bit gloomy and depressed about things that, and if we we need to um, allow young people to do it their own way sometimes and not be too judgmental about what they're reading, just let them read. Yeah, and also I would say, say television, there's more intelligent television around than 30 years ago. So, you know, our son who, who scrolls through Instagram all the time, he also is totally gripped by the series Chernobyl, which they were, they were demanding slow, substantial episodes, but they were just so well made that they won his attention away from the myriad of other things he could have been focused on. So yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not despairing at all. Thank you for listening to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Lakshdatta. This podcast is produced by Lonchora in partnership with Teamwork Arts. Please follow or subscribe to Jaipur Bites wherever you're listening to this. Ah.